Welcome back to Inside Personal Growth. This is Greg Voisin, the host of Inside Personal Growth. And I want to thank all of my listeners who come from around the world and have supported Inside Personal Growth over the last eight years to make it what it is today, which is a very successful program. And today, joining me uh, from Rancho Santa Fe, California, which is a suburb of San Diego, very close to where I am, is Marshall Goldsmith. And we're going to be speaking with Marshall today about his new book called Triggers, Creating Behavior That Lasts, Becoming the Person You Want to Be. Marshall, good day to you. How are you doing? Oh, doing great. Thanks for inviting me. Well, I appreciate having you on the show to discuss this new book. And Mark Ryder was your co-author on this book. And I want to give him kudos, too, to a great book that the two of you have put together. And the most important thing here is just how these triggers are really kind of affecting people and their performance, not only in the workplace, but really their life in general. And I'm going to let my listeners know just a tad bit about you. Most people know who Marshall Goldsmith is, but he's a world-leading executive coach and the author of New York Times bestseller, What Got You Here Won't Get You There. Uh, Another book he did is Mojo. He received his Ph.D. from UCLA, Anderson School of Management. His client lists are the who's who of America CEOs. Um, And as I mentioned, he lives here in San Diego and if you want to get more information, all you have to do is type in Marshall Goldsmith in your in your thing, and you'll come up with tons of opportunities. Your personal website that you would direct people to, Marshall, would be what? www.marshallgoldsmith.com? That's it. Okay. www.marshallgoldsmith.com. That's a pretty easy one to go to. Now, Marshall, let's kind of just start this off because you've created a book here which can be very instrumental in helping people shift behavior. And you have 15 belief triggers that stop what you call behavior change in their track. And obviously, people working on their behavior, you know, it's it's a real issue because it doesn't matter if it's weight loss or stop biting your nails, which is one of the examples you had in the book. Um, let's talk about a few of them, because there are 15, and we don't have time to get to all of them. But one of them is, you shouldn't need help with structure. Um, speak with us about that one, because that's a belief that people have, which is erroneous. Well, you know, it's very interesting. We get into this sort of misplaced, egoistic, macho stuff, that, you know, I should be above needing help, I should be above needing structure, I should be above needing direction. Somehow I'm better than all that. And that really inhibits us from changing. What happens is, if you look at the concept of change, um, we all need help. And if you look at the people that I coach, these are among the most successful leaders in the world. Well, why do they have a coach? Because they want someone to help them. I have someone help me. Uh, All the great tennis players have coaches. So I think one thing that's really important is getting over that egotistical, I don't need help, I don't need structure, I'm above that. There's a great book called The Checklist Manifesto published by Dr. Atul Gawande from Harvard Medical School. And he points out that you know if a nurse reads a, asks a doctor a series of very simple structured questions from a checklist before the surgery, the odds on unneeded infection plummet and the death rate because of unnecessary infection is cut by about two-thirds. The huge majority of hospitals around the world don't allow the nurse to ask the doctor the questions. Why? Ego. According to Dr. Gwandi, more people have died because of the egos of surgeons and died in the Vietnam War, the Afghan War, and the Iraqi War put together. Well, when we get over this sort of egotistical need that I'm above all this, 
life gets a lot better. Definitely. It's a, you know, the reality is, is that we need to basically be open to that and to get assistance. Um, we do need help. And you're obviously one of the world premier coaches helping some of the highest, most paid executives in the world uh, get that help. Now, no, number two is that you won't get distracted and nothing unexpected will occur. Um, you know, this is a belief that, you know, people have got, hey, I'm going to set this goal. I'm going to attain this. I'm not going to get distracted. Uh, speak with us about that a little bit. Well, there's something they talk about called the high probability of low probability distractions. When we plan our day, we do not plan on something I call low probability distractions. You don't plan on a car wreck. You don't plan on someone dying. You don't plan on getting sick. These are all very low probability things, so you can't plan on them because you think it's very unlikely that they're going to occur. Well, while it's unlikely any one of them will occur, the odds that something will occur are actually quite high because there are millions of low probability events that could occur. So when we make our plans, we plan on this sort of uh, dream life that, you know, no cars break down, no relatives get sick, nobody gets hurt, uh, there are no accidents, and that's not the real world. In the real world, things always happen. When I coach executives, I work with them typically 18 months in my coaching. And I tell them I could work with you maybe 12 months, but I'm sure there's going to be a crisis. And they'll ask me, well, what crisis? I say, I don't know. I don't know what crisis, but I've never worked with a CEO in my life for 18 months that did not have a crisis. There is always a crisis. Yeah, there's always the unexpected, and that's what you're basically saying with these belief triggers that stop us in our in our track. That obviously would be one because we'd get sidetracked. Now, you say that a lot of people say, I have the wisdom to assess my own behavior. Now, this is a belief that obviously people with big egos and whatever are going, hey, I don't. I don't need anyone to help me here. I, I know I know what I'm doing wrong. But some of the top athletes have to have coaches to have them make changes in behavior, correct? So let's go of into course. that one. Yep. Of course, almost all of them do. And in fact, uh, we do not have the wisdom to objectively evaluate our own behavior. That's not a theory. That's a statistical fact. I've asked 80,000 people how they compare with their professional peers. What have I learned? 70% of us believe we're in the top 10% of our professional peer group. 82% of us believe we're in the top 20, and 98.5% of us believe we're in the top half. Well, you know, successful people are delusional, and the more successful we become, the more delusional we get. People laugh at our jokes. They pretend we're smart. They don't challenge us. So we start actually believing this nonsense. We, we seldom have the wisdom to objectively evaluate our own behavior. Most certainly. I mean, and you have, like I said to my listeners, we've only gone through three, but the book has 15 of these behavioral stop in your track uh, thoughts that he does. And they're great. And he kind of starts the book off with it. Now, you've dedicated a whole chapter to how our environment affects our behavior. Now, this isn't something that the average person out there today is thinking, well, my environment, what does that have to do with my, with my behavior? Speak with our listeners about how important monitoring the environment is if we're going to effectively change behavior. Well, if you look at behavioral change, let's take the extreme negative case study. A person is a drug addict. Then they go to rehab. And they, they get better, and they really seriously commit to change. And they're not hypocrites or phonies. They really want to change, and they believe they are going to change. 
But what happens when they go back in the same environment in the neighborhood? Well, if, if nothing changes in the environment, there's a very high probability the environment's going to drive them to become the person that they used to be, not the person that they want to be. We don't realize how our environment, if we're not, if we're not conscious, our environment controls us. We do not control it. Uh, you get in a traffic situation, you start acting angry and screaming at people. Well, normally that's not the way you act, but the environment sort of pushes you in that direction. And what's a trigger? A trigger is any stimulus from our environment that impacts our behavior. Any stimulus from our environment that impacts our behavior is a trigger. And in the book, what I talk about is trying to break a cycle. The typical cycle is there is a trigger. The trigger produces an impulse, and the impulse produces a reaction or behavior. What I say is try to change it. So there is a trigger. The trigger produces an impulse, but then put in the step of awareness. You start becoming aware of how you feel and what's going on. Then realize I have a choice. Then demonstrate the behavior. So the behavior is a function of the awareness and the choice, not just the trigger and the impulse. And I've heard it put, Marshall, that what happens is you have an event and you have an experience from the event, and we can talk about this a little bit, your role really, and I've heard this from some of the top executives in companies and top attorneys representing huge companies, our role is not to resist the experience from the event. Uh, but frequently what we do is we get, uh, we get, we think that we can change it, right? Um, and frequently we can't. It's there for us to experience. There's a reason for it. Um, you know, when, and, and this brings me to this next question. When you work with executives, you have the coworkers identify their behaviors that are affecting their performance. What are some of the common triggers you find prevalent amongst the corporate employees that, you know, when you do this assessment, you say, hey, here's your fellow coworkers around you. Um, I want them to assess uh, whoever it might be, this middle-level manager or this top executive, what is it that you commonly see? Well, uh, I, I'd say I was asking the Harvard Business Review, what is the number one problem of all the successful people that you coach? And my answer was winning too much. What does that mean? If it's important, we want to win. If it's meaningful, we want to win. If it's trivial, we want to win. And if it's not worth it, we want to win anyway. It's very hard for winners not to constantly win. And what happens is... If I'm, for example, the CEO and you talk and I disagree with you, my instinctive reaction is going to be to prove that I'm right as opposed to asking myself, is it worth it? Why am I doing this? I use a case study with my clients that they almost all fail. I say, pretend you're going to go to dinner at restaurant X. Your husband, wife, partner, friend wants to go to dinner at restaurant Y. You have a heated argument. You go to restaurant Y and the food tastes terrible and the service is awful. Option A, you could critique the food and point out your partner was wrong. Or option B, you could shut up, eat the stupid food, and try to have a nice evening. What would I do? What should I do? Almost all my clients, what would I do? Critique the food. What should I do? Shut up. It's very difficult for smart, successful people not to constantly go through life trying to win. The second triggering impulse is adding too much value. I'm your boss. You say something to me. I think it's a great idea. Rather than just saying great idea, my natural tendency is to say, well, that's a nice idea. Why don't you add this to it? The problem is the quality of the idea may go up 5%. My commitment to execute the idea may go down 50%. It's no longer my idea. Mm -hmm. Now it's your idea. 
Mm -hmm. as opposed to really understanding, all right, the person is saying something. It is triggering my reaction to talk. Before I talk, stop and breathe. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Is what I'm going to say worth the effort? One of my coaching clients retired eight years ago, J.P. Garnier, CEO of Glaxo, he said, I said, what you learn about leadership as a CEO of this huge company? He said, I learned a very hard lesson. My suggestions become orders. If they're smart, they're orders. If they're stupid, they're orders. If I want them to be orders, they're orders. If I don't want them to be orders, they're orders anyway. My suggestions become orders. I asked him, what you learned from me that helped you the most? He said, stop and breathe and ask myself one question before I speak. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? And he said, learning that made me a better CEO and helped me have a happier life. Wow. That is uh, stop and breathe and say, is it worth it? That's worth the whole interview for everybody out there who's listening. Because I think we do what I call add-on thinking. Uh, somebody asks you a question, you obviously, as you said, want to look smart or you want to add something to it, but you're really not, uh, as you say, stopping, breathing, and saying, is it worth it to add it on to it? And you said performance goes down by 50%. Now you say in your model for how triggers work, you've modified it somewhat um, some, from what you learned in college. And you also were talking about Charles Duggan's This Power of Habit book suggests. You say that it's trigger, impulse, awareness, choice, behavior. Can you explain a little bit how that model works and what you actually modified since what you learned uh, at UCLA and your, and your studies on this? Well, again, the natural reaction is trigger impulse behavior. And what I've learned about this is we really do have a choice. There is kind of that split second between the impulse and the behavior. We don't have much of a choice between trigger and impulse because the impulse usually occurs before we have time for conscious thinking. And what we do is we, we don't have to act on the impulse. That's where we have a split second to make a choice. We have a choice of saying, do I really want to do this right now? I, I have a process called the daily question process I do every day, which we can talk about in a second. And one of my questions is, what percent of today was I conscious? What percent of today was I conscious? You know, probably 50% is an average day, and probably I may be giving myself more credit than this do. Most of our lives, we walk around, we're not conscious. We're not really aware. We're just zombies. And we're getting really controlled by the world around us in ways we don't even understand. Commercials, um, billboards, traffic, noise, uh, anger, all kinds of things. All our electronic up. devices, right? <laughs> oh, you know, I've, I've asked uh, thousands of parents, I said, go back and ask your child, how can it be a better parent? What is the number one answer from children today? put away that cell phone while you're talking to me. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Simple stuff. But you're, you're right. We are, you, like you said, trigger impulse. I think what's happened is these devices have become addi incredibly addicted. Um, people are addicted to it. You see them on the freeway. You see people at restaurants. You see parents with their kids in there. It, it, it is addicting. And um, I, I don't really have an answer for how they're going to change the addiction other than, as you said, put them down and turn them off. Um, oh, I, I've got a suggestion for parents. Uh, about 20 years ago, I unfortunately wrote an article and I said, within 20 years, media addiction will surpass drug addiction and alcohol addiction combined as a social problem. Oh, we're already there. 
media addiction in our society is awful. The average kid that's flunking out of school spends 55 hours a week on non-academic media, 55 hours a week. That's a disease. Mm-hmm. Well, what I suggest to parents is there is something you can do. Monitor how many minutes a day your child spends on non-academic media. Just monitor it and set a limit. Because if you don't set a limit, I mean, it just goes on and on and on. Yeah, definitely does. Definitely does. Now, you mentioned that there are, if you'd like to, let's go into those daily questions because you said we could talk about them for a minute. Um, what are some of those daily questions? And uh, is there a place where people can go other than the book to get a PDF of that? Well, let me describe how the process works. Okay. Uh, I pay a woman to call me on the phone every day. Her name is Sarah. She just called me a few minutes ago. She calls me every day and listens to me read 29 questions that I wrote and provide 29 answers that I wrote every day. Mm-hmm. Now, the number changes. Sometimes it's 29, sometimes it's 15, sometimes it's 30. But every day, she listens to me answer a series of questions, and I pay her to do this. Someone asked me, why do you pay someone to call you on the phone every day to listen to you read questions that you wrote and provide answers that you wrote? Don't you know the theory about how to change behavior? I wrote the theory about how to change behavior. That's why I have a woman call me every day. Mm-hmm. I know how difficult this is. Now I'm going to share with all your listeners something that takes two minutes a day, costs absolutely nothing, that's going to help them get better at almost anything. And people are skeptical now thinking, yeah, right, two minutes a day costs nothing, help me get better at almost anything. And the counterintuitive part is half will quit in two weeks. And they will not quit because it does not work. They will quit because it does work. What I'm going to teach you next, the daily question process, is incredibly easy to understand. It is incredibly difficult to do. Most people can't do it. Here's how it works. Get out an Excel spreadsheet, and on one column, write down a list of questions. These questions represent what's most important in your life. Every question must be answered with a yes, no, or a number. Seven boxes across, one for every day of the week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, and then... You fill it out every day, and at the end of the week, that Excel spreadsheet will give you a report card. Now, when I teach in corporations, I always say, you know that report card at the end of the week? It might not be quite as pretty as that corporate values plaque stuck up on the wall. Hmm. You do this every day. You know, you realize life is incredibly easy to talk, and it's hard to live. Let me give you a couple of my questions. And if anybody would like all my questions, send me an email, marshall at marshallgoldsmith.com, and I'll send you just write down daily questions. I'll send you all of my questions in an article describing the process. Now, what are some of my questions every day? For example, on a 1 to 10 scale, how many times yesterday did you try to prove you were right when it was not worth it? Kind of hard for the old professor not to be right all the time. Well, I've almost never scored a zero my whole life. How many angry or destructive comments did you make about people yesterday? How many minutes did you walk? How many push-ups did you do? How many sit-ups did you do? Did you say or do something nice for your wife or your daughter? Say or do something nice for your son-in-law, for your grandkids? A bunch of basic questions about life. How much do you weigh? You know, just, and a friend of mine does this. Jim Moore would tell you this process saved his life. Wow. It didn't kind, of, didn't kind of save his life or sort of save his life. It did save his life. It was one of his questions every day. Are you currently updated on your physical exam? The first 90 days he did this, he said no every day. After 90 days, he said, that's embarrassing. I've got to get the stupid exam or quit asking the questions. We well, got the stupid exam. The doctor said, you have cancer. Now, that was years ago. He's going to be fine. The doctor also said, had you waited seven more months, you'd be dead. He knew he should have got the physical exam, but he didn't do it. 
hold a mirror in front of your face every day, you know what you learn? It's very hard to hide. What a what a great process to give to our listeners and obviously an opportunity for them. As you said, most people, after this 20, whatever the number of days is, Tony Robbins says it becomes a habit, you know, 21 days, 30 days, whatever. The reality is, is that you say half of the people will quit it before. I'm going to encourage everybody out there to, to um, adopt Marshall's process here and hopefully stick with it. Marshall, you've encouraged me. I'm going to start the process. So I'll get an Excel spreadsheet out, put my questions on it. And who knows, maybe I'll hire somebody to call me about it, but at least look at it every morning. It's a great opportunity. Now, you mentioned there are two sides to us, um, the leader, the planner, the manager, and then the follower, doer, and employee. You mentioned that we think that we're the same, but in fact, we're not. And that we start our day as bifurcated individuals. Um, how does this thinking of how does the thinking not being aware that we're different, two different people, um, lead us into living? Uh, I would say a, a life that's not on purpose, because it's well, it truly, you know, we are bifurcated individuals. Of course, when we plan the day, it's often in the morning. We're not tired. We're not hungry. And we're planning to go on a healthy foods diet. Then that person doing the planning is not tired and hungry and staring at the chocolate cake at the end of the day. You see, that person doing the doing is quite different than the person doing the planning. When we make a plan, we assume that the doer is the same as the planner. The doer is a very different person than the planner. And it's very easy for the planner to suggest that the doer sacrifice. The planner is not sacrificing. Mm-hmm. The doer does the sacrificing. So, in the same way that you know we can't just dictate for other people and assume they're going to do everything we say. Well, we can't just dictate to ourselves and assume that we're going to do everything that our planner suggests we're going to do because in most cases we don't. I mean, why don't people? Why don't people do what I teach? Well, I'm going to make a prediction. I'm the only teacher you've ever met that's collected research from tens of thousands of people who have been to my classes. And I measure, do they do what I teach, and do they get better? And, you know, the people that do the stuff get better, and not surprisingly, people that go to my classes but don't do anything when they go back don't get better. They don't get worse. They just stay the same. Mm -hmm. Why don't people do what I teach? Well, years ago, my biggest client was Johnson & Johnson. I had the privilege of working with their top 2,000 leaders all the way from Ralph Larson at the time, the CEO, down to number 2,000. At the end of my class, they were all going to—they were all asked a question. Uh, you know, all I asked them to do is they got feedback, talk to people, follow up, measure effectiveness, and did they become more effective? 98% of the leaders in my classes said, I'm going to do what Marshall taught me. 98%. A year later, about 70% had done something and 30% absolutely zero. Not even one minute. I'm not ashamed of these numbers. I'm proud of these numbers. 70% of 2,000 people is 1,400 people getting evaluated by 10 co-workers each. So 14,000 people had a little bit better life. I'm proud of that. I got to talk to the people who did nothing. I said, why did you do nothing? The answer had nothing to do with ethics, values, or integrity. They're good people. The company won an award that year, most ethical company in the world. Had nothing to do with intelligence. They're smart people. The reason it did nothing had to do with a dream. It's a dream I've had for years. I'm incredibly busy right now, giving pressures of work and home and new technology that follows me everywhere. I'm, I feel about as busy as I ever have. Sometimes I feel overcommitted. 
I don't tell others this, but every now and again, my life feels a little bit out of control. But you know, I'm working on some very unique and special challenges right now. And I think the worst of this is going to be over in about four or five months. And after that, I'm going to take two or three weeks and get organized and spend some time with my family. And I'm going to begin my new healthy life program. And everything's going to be different. And it will not be crazy anymore. How many people have ever had a dream that vaguely resembles that dream? <laughs> Plenty of people, <laughs> including myself. <laughs> of course. I'll admit it. Yep. We all have that dream. We're all going to get it, get to it tomorrow, or it's going to change, or something's going to happen. So, yeah. 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 Postpone the is, There's not going to be any two or three weeks, and sanity's not going to prevail. Tomorrow is probably going to be crazier than today. When I work in corporations, I say, how many of you are in a job where you've got to make numbers? You've got to make those numbers. Well, people raise their hand. I'll say, let's talk about Joe over here. Joe, let's all pretend Joe overachieves on every number by 25%. Let's give him a big round of applause. Everybody applause. And I said, what are the odds next year? Joe, the big boss, is going to come back and say, Joe, take a little break. Mm -hmm. let's, lower the, let's lower those numbers. Yeah. No. What's going to happen to the numbers next year? They're just going up. And then I say, Joe, raise your hand, repeat after me. My name is Joe, and it's always going to be crazy. What's even more funny is I do this with entrepreneurs. And then I say, imagine you overachieve on your goals by 25%. What are the odds you can lower your goals on yourself next year? And they say, zero. And I say, repeat after me. My name is Joe, and I'm always going to be crazy. <laughs> <laughs> because the, ent the entrepreneur knows even making you do it. Yeah. Who's in, that case, who's in that case that's making you do all this stuff if you're the entrepreneur? You are. Yeah, it's an insidious cycle is what yeah. I think what happens to most people as they get into that insidious cycle. And what, what you're talking about in your book is the opportunity to stop these triggers, these beliefs that we run around with that create that insidious cycle in our life. And I, I think that's a great story that you just told about Johnson & Johnson. Now, you've been using something called the wheel of change that you've been using for, with clients for years. You state... Uh, that you have four options to change or keep the positive elements or change or to keep negative elements. Can you kind of explain this wheel of change a little bit? It's in the book um, yeah, for my listeners. It's it's an easy chart uh, to look at. The question is, are you really understanding it? Maybe you can shed a little light on it. Well, there are two dimensions. Uh, one dimension is negative, positive, and the other dimension is change, keep. And then four quadrants. The first quadrant as we plan our future, try to become the person we want to be, is positive change. Who is the me I want to create in the future? Who is this new me? And how is this me going to be different than the old me? And in looking at creating positive change for ourselves, I say a great place to start is look at your identity. We all put ourselves in stereotypical boxes. Now, for example, I didn't have a brother or sister, nor did my wife. I, really didn't understand the importance of siblings until I got older, but so many of us have an identity that's shaped vis-a-vis -vis the way our parents described us relative to our siblings. For example, he's the smart one, she's the lazy one, she's the pretty one, he's the great dancer. And a lot of these messages come from childhood, and many of them are positive, yet a lot of times they have a dark side. For example, I was working in a hospital and I asked a question, how many of you were brought up to believe you were the responsible one? Everyone in the room rose their hand. They all, they all had their hand up. Then we talked about it. 
well, it's kind of good to be the responsible one in many ways. That's positive, obviously. But there's a dark side. The dark side is people said, I always have to be responsible. The others get to have more fun. I feel a burden that I have to carry around. I have to take care of everything myself all the time. So while at one level it's a very positive thing, at another level there's kind of a dark side. And when I ask people in looking at the you you want to create in the future, what do you want to change? Well, maybe you still want to be responsible, but you don't always have to feel responsible. Maybe you want to be smart, but you don't always have to prove you're smart. Maybe you want to be an achiever, but you know maybe you don't have to raise the goal every year. So I ask people, who is that me I want to be in the future, and how is that different from the me that's here now? The second part of the wheel of change is called preserving. We often get so focused on creating what we don't have that we forget to preserve what we do have. A classic example in New York is Wall Street. You see people really doing a fantastic job of creating wealth, sometimes at the expense of their families, at the expense of their health. Why? They get so focused on creating something new, they forget to preserve what they had. Uh, My friend Frances Hesselbein did a wonderful job of turning around the Girl Scouts years ago, and she had a motto, tradition with the future. She, She really focused on creating a new organization in the future, but she also wanted to preserve the positive traditions from the past. And so I think it's very important as we plan for the future, don't just get focused on what I want, want to create. What do I want to preserve? The third element in our model is, is eliminating. What do I need to get rid of? And one reason my book, What Got You Here Won't Get You There, is so popular is the whole book is about what not to do, behavior to eliminate, what to stop. Peter Drucker said we spend a lot of time teaching leaders what to do. We don't spend enough time teaching leaders what to stop. Well, think about your future. If all we do is create, but we don't eliminate, we'll be constantly overcommitted. So just as important to ask, what do I need to get rid of and eliminate? And then finally, the one quadrant that people have the most trouble with often is accepting. What is it I just need to make peace with and accept? Mm-hmm. What is it in life? It may be negative, but I'm not going to change it. And I think an advantage of getting older is, you know, I realize I'm not going to change everything. I'm not going to save the world for democracy and cure cancer. There's a lot of things in life I'm not going to fix. That's okay. Make mm. peace. Pick, pick your battles. And part of life, and by the way, we waste so much of our lives carping about things we're not going to change. People spend hours talking about the weather. Athletic teams. In my condominium in New York, one of my neighbors was Lindsay Lohan. How many millions of hours got spent by people reading stories about Lindsay Lohan getting high? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Lindsay, Lo- Lindsay Lohan's not reading stories about you. <laughs> Why are it's you wasting waste you waste your life on this? Yeah, yeah. You're right. So much time is spent on a lot of trivia, and I think that it's it's propagated, too, a lot by not only just the media, but all these electronic advice uh, devices that we have as well, because everybody's plugged in on all the time, you know, read a good book or sit down and have a dialogue with somebody, just a dialogue um, about life in general, go deep uh, instead of so shallow. So much of it, Marshall, to me, seems so shallow. And I, I don't mean that to be uh, commenting negatively about anybody and the devices, but we all find ourselves caught there at time. Now, and I thought you did an, an amazingly good job of explaining that wheel, so thank you for doing that. And last question. You state that apology is where behavior change begins 
and that optimism is a magic move. What makes this gesture magical and how effectively, you know, can that help us change behavior, this apology? Well, apology is something that all of my clients have to do. Because when I coach people, I don't get paid if they don't get better. And better is not judged by me or my client. It's judged by everyone around my client. And what I say is, we all make mistakes. And there's nothing wrong with making mistakes. And when I make a mistake and it hurts another person, what should I do? Apologize. And if I feel like blaming somebody for my mistakes, who is probably the best person in the world to blame? That might be me. And I wrote an article in Fast Company magazine called Help Others Develop, Start With Yourself. Really, as a leader, the people I coach are typically CEOs of huge organizations. I say, you want everybody else to get better? Let them watch you to try. Let, let them watch you get better. You want everybody else to take responsibility? Let them watch you take responsibility. You want them to admit their problems? Let them watch you admit your problems. So that's the apology part. The optimism part is... The greatest leaders I've ever met are Francis Hesselbein, who was CEO of the Girl Scouts, and Alan Mulally, who just retired as the CEO of Ford, was ranked as the number three greatest leader in the world last year. I've known these people 20, 30 years apiece, and I can tell you, I've never seen either one of them be down one minute. Uh, they're professional, they're up, they're positive, let's make it work. And they're humans like everybody else. They go through all kinds of challenges in life. Alan used to be head of Boeing Commercial Aircraft. I was with him after 9-11. You know what he said? No. This is what, this is what I get paid for. Anybody, mm -hmm. can be a Anybody can be a leader when times are good. Times are tough. This is what I get paid for. Well, and I think that all of those leaders that you've been coaching over the years um, understand that. It's a question of whether or not they have the ability, the fortitude to stay with it. As you said, we all are human. At times, we do fall off of the... Uh, pedestal, but I think what's most important is understanding, one, not to let the ego get involved, two, as you've said here, to stop these triggers um, that are, are keeping us from becoming not only better leaders, but better human beings, more importantly. Um, you know, Marshall, this book truly does an excellent job of not only pointing out our behaviors, great stories, um, but giving an opportunity people to um, learn some of the techniques uh, like you shared with us, uh, the daily questions. I think that's great. Um, all of these triggers that we've got to actually change these behaviors um, and actually feel better about ourselves as well. I think frequently we've got this tape running that we can always do more, we can always be better, we can be this. I think stop, stop reflect and look at the triggers that are affecting that. Thanks for being on with us today and sharing more about triggers. The book is Triggers with Marshall Goldsmith and Mark Ryder. Um, they've done a great job here. You can find this at Amazon. We'll have a link. We'll have a link also to Marshall's website um, and also the book site. Marshall, thanks so much for taking this time to share some of your wisdom, knowledge um, about the triggers that are affecting our behavior. Any last words for our listeners? No, thank you very much. I certainly appreciated talking with you, and I hope this has been helpful and maybe help people have just a little bit better.